Neuropathways, a Cleveland Clinic podcast exploring the latest research discoveries and clinical advances in the fields of neurology, neurosurgery, neurorehab, and psychiatry. In the U.S., it's estimated that 16 million people are living with depression and approximately one-third of depressed patients are considered treatment-resistant. Ketamine was once used mainly as a surgical anesthetic in operating rooms and is now gaining ground as a promising treatment for depression. In today's episode of Neural Pathways, we're discussing ketamine research for treatment-resistant depression. I'm your host, Glenn Stevens, a neurologist, neuro-oncologist in Cleveland Clinic's Neurological Institute. And today, I'm pleased to be joined by Dr. Ahmed Anad. Ahmed is Vice Chair for Research in Cleveland Clinic's Center for Behavioral Health and Director of the Mood and Emotional Disorders Across the Lifespan Program at the Cleveland Clinic. Amit, welcome to Neural Pathways. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And I would just say at the start that during the pandemic and all the social isolation, I think that this becomes an even more uh, important topic to bring up and uh, is affecting uh, many individuals across our nation. So uh, perhaps with the first question, when we look at patients coping with depression, we most often uh, find uh, relief in antidepressants. But for those experiencing treatment-resistant depression, standard medications provide little to no relief. Can you start our conversation by defining treatment-resistant depression? Treatment-resistant depression, I think it's, uh, you know, as you said, it is, when you say treatment-resistant, is it is resistant to antidepressant the commonly used antidepressants oral antidepressants such as pro you know fluoxetine or prozac or the ssris or uh, some of the dual reuptake inhibitors so all the antidepressants that we that we have had for the past uh, you know 30 40 years uh, or more uh, if a person does not respond to that so it is not a the depression will always be treatment resistant, but it is, it is resistant to the commonly used antidepressants. And there are many definitions of uh, treatment resistance depression, but the most commonly that we used are like uh, if a person does not respond to at least two adequate trials of adequate mean ac- adequate dosage, which is the full dosage that uh, is recommended, as well as duration, because uh, many of these uh, antidepressants take anywhere from six to 12 weeks to actually start acting. So if somebody's only taken it for a couple of weeks, doesn't that doesn't count. So an adequate trial of at least two antidepressants, uh, of uh, preferably of different class, uh, that we would call probably will be the most uh, liberal definition of treatment-resistant depression. Now, some people want three you know, three different antidepressants of three different classes. And so that would be a more conservative definition of treatment-resistant depression. So I know you've been in the field for many years. Can you take us through the evolution of therapy for patients with treatment-resistant depression and how it's changed over time? Yeah, that's a that's a very interesting uh, topic. And, you know, almost uh, it's like a history of uh, psychopharmacology. But uh, initially, you know, in the uh, 
1950s or 60s, the main antidepressants which originally came out was um, imipramine, uh, uh, which is a tricyclic antidepressant, and it affects various neurotransmitters. And then the monoamine oxidase inhibitors were also available at that time, uh, things like phenelzin, which is a monoamine oxidase inhibitor. And they were the first few antidepressants to be uh, discovered and used, and they still, uh, in some respects, remain the most effective medications uh, until now. Uh, however, they had a lot of side effects. For example, with tricyclics, you would have dry mouth, a lot of anticholinergic side effects, constipation, blurring of vision, and then if taken overdoses, they could be fatal. So there was a lot of uh, sort of dissatisfaction with that. And of course, with the monoamine oxidase inhibitors, you can get malignant hypertension if you eat the wrong things. So in the next big uh, evolution in antidepressant was when Prozac or fluoxetine was discovered, or the SSRIs were discovered in the early 1990s. And the SSRIs were uh, much better tolerated, they had less side effects, and they were found to be more or less equally effective for depression. So uh, that was one big thing. And for a long time, since the 1990s to even now, they are the some of the most widely used antidepressants. Um, then there were a few sort of uh, changes to that that uh, people want to uh, make like dual reuptake inhibitors, which will act both on norepinephrine and serotonin. So something like uh, uh, venlafaxine or Effexor came up, or duloxetine or Cymbalta came up. And then another medication called Velbutrin, which is quite different, or bupropion, which acts on the dopamine reuptake. But all of them were based on what is called the catecholamine hypothesis that the idea that if you increase the catecholamines in the brain, your depression will improve. Uh, and that's what we have been through uh, for the last two, three decades. That's what has been the main uh, mode of uh, treatment. However, more and more studies were coming out that even these antidepressants were only helping, say, at the most half or two-thirds of uh, patients to get response or remission. So people are looking at different things. Lately, I mean, this last year was the first time that a new antidepressant uh, was actually approved by the FDA uh, called uh, S-intranasal ketamine or uh, Spravato, which can be taken intranasally. Uh, however, ketamine as such as a possible antidepressant was um, discovered uh, in the late 1990s. And the first paper, uh, I, was in, I was part of that first paper, which came out in 2000 from Yale, uh, when we the first um, uh, study of ketamine as an antidepressant was discovered. And uh, any comments about uh, ECT and its role? The only non-pharmacological treatment, and ECT is even older than antidepressants. It's been, it's been around with us for about 70, 80 years now. And uh, so when people did not respond to antidepressant, they had severe depression, or there were an imminent risk of harm than ECT. So that's a whole class of different treatment for depression, uh, which are called stimulation uh, treatments, like ECT was the first one, then magnetic stimulation with transcranial magnetic stimulation uh, came up, and then vagus nerve stimulation came up, and then uh, deep brain stimulation uh, came up. Now, I should say that 
you know, one thing about psychiatry treatments is that they are usually have been available for other indications, uh, many mostly neurological indications, and they're adopted uh, in psychiatry when people feel that, oh, this thing is also probably helping mood. Uh, So ECT, you know, was, you know, uh, was used for several other things, for seizure therapy and other things. Same thing for TMS, for VNS, and for deep brain stimulation, which was used for Parkinson's disease. So it is not that at any time any indication that they were more effective than medications, but they were available. And then when people did not find that the treatment with antidepressant was helping, then they would give these treatments. Though ECT, I would say, uh, has had some indication that it may be more effective in um, treating patients who did not respond to antidepressants. So it's it's uh, quite exciting to get to talk with you since you've been around uh, with the ketamine experience. And I'm just curious, was it serendipity uh, that it was found that patients who received that anesthetic, their depression did better for a period of time? Or uh, do you have a story for it? Or how did they get onto it? Yeah, I definitely have a story. I mean, fortunately or unfortunately, it was also found through serendipity or chance. So uh, at Yale, I mean, ketamine, uh, it's a derivative of uh, fencyclidine or PCP, and which was also thought to be an aesthetic agent initially, but it causes psychosis. So they formed a milder version of it called, of milder version of which was ketamine, but ketamine also causes, uh, you know, psychedelic experiences or psychosis. So at Yale, the person who was actually studying it, uh, actually in healthy subjects, he was trying to make a model of psychosis or schizophrenia by giving intravenous ketamine. And then he was trying out, so people were, and now I should also say that this is, the use in psychiatry from that point is is for sub-anesthetic doses of ketamine. So this is not as high to put somebody to sleep. It is actually a sub-anesthetic dose uh, anywhere from like you know 0.5 milligram per kilogram um, uh, over 30 to 40 minutes. So just to give it as an infusion, and people would have all these uh, what would we call like sort of psychedelic experiences, and was being used as a model for schizophrenia. And then the person there was trying to actually uh, uh, use other medications to decrease the psychosis and use it as a model for developing treatments for schizophrenia. However, uh, I was actually in the mood disorders group. There were different people. That other person was in the schizophrenia uh, research group. And um, and there is there was at that time also some indication that NMDA antagonists may have some antidepressant properties. So things like imantadine were around at that time. There was some evidence that they have some euphoric effects. So somebody said, well, let's try out ketamine when in depressed uh, patients. And uh, we were originally, people, people were skeptical. We had a little bit of hard time getting it through the IRB, uh, but we finally got it. And the, there was a colleague of mine, Angela Capiello, uh, who actually uh, was an Italian psychiatrist who had just come to the US and she did the first study. And it was pretty amazing. And I still remember she came to our group and said, it's pretty amazing. I gave this ketamine to this depressed person has been three days and he's saying he's not depressed at all. That was uh, pretty amazing. And we, so it was a small study about eight to 10 patients. So there are a lot of other medications like amphetamines 
which can cause euphoria and other things. But with ketamine, uh, you give one dose and then the at least for seven days, you can have like the persons who respond say, well, I, I don't have any depression anymore. So it was um, pretty amazing. And the idea at that time was that, as I said, the usual antidepressants take four to six weeks or more to act. And the idea was, can we find something which works fast, uh, just like ECT? So we thought we had found something which can work very fast. However, as I said, the duration of a single infusion was for about seven days. And after seven days, you know, the person relapsed back into depression. So it was, it was still, uh, uh, you know, a short period of uh, alleviation of depression, but more than the immediate effect of, say, a stimulant like amphetamine or something like that, but not as much as for an antidepressant, which was, if taken for a longer term, would actually, for many months or years, have an antidepressant effect. So if we move forward to esketamine, uh, won't you tell me a little bit about its use and, and how you've used it or how you're using it or what population you would use it in? Esketamine is very recent, you know. M- many people would not have much experience with it at this time. So, And it is intranasal esketamine. So ketamine has been around, as you said, for a long time. So there are oral forms of ketamine available, uh, intranasal forms are available, then there are the two isomers and antimers of ketamine, esketamine, and R-ketamine. And so both of them have been available for some time. So people have been using it for a long time. I think uh, the intranasal ketamine, because you know people were not using it that much, I think uh, uh, the pharma company was able to get a, a patent on that and make an intranasal formulation of that and then start doing trials in the last few years. Though there's a large, since our original study in 96 or so, and the paper was published in 2000, uh, for like nearly 15, 20 years, there have been lots and lots of studies done on intravenous ketamine as an antidepressant. And it is pretty clear that the, at least uh, one infusion of ketamine can cause an antidepressant effect, but to sustain it, it is not very clear what do you have to do, whether you have to keep on giving IV ketamine or do something else. So S-ketamine has been around recently. It is now available and it's supposed to have possibly a similar effect as intravenous ketamine. And as you would realize, it's much easier to give than intravenous ketamine. However, it is about one dose, I think costs about $800 or so, while ketamine costs, uh, IV ketamine, one dose is $4. So there's a very big premium price uh, on it, but because FDA has now approved it, it will be covered by insurance companies to do that. So currently you hold a multi-year PCORI grant with the Cleveland Clinic. Can you provide insights as to what research you and your team are currently conducting? Yeah. Now, ECT, as as we discussed, is one of the most time-tested treatment for resistant depression. Uh, So in fact, psychiatry in some ways synonymous with ECT, if somebody's seen the one one flew over the cuckoo's nest or some of those movies, you know. However, ECT has a very bad uh, reputation um, because, you know, as it is depicted in movies and literature, that's one thing. It does cause memory problems 
And also, uh, you know, you have to go under general anesthesia to get ECT. So it's a bit difficult uh, treatment to give. I would say generally patients don't like it, you know, uh, going through ECT. Doctors, however, are willing to prescribe it because it has been found to be very effective. And it has only survived for 70, 80 years because we don't didn't have any alternative. So now that ketamine is available, we have an alternative for treatment-resistant depression, something which works very similar to ECT, works very fast, uh, even decreases suicidal ideation. So the idea uh, for the study that we are currently doing, a very big study, is to actually directly compare ECT and ketamine. So we are taking people who are referred for ECT, and we approach them and say, well, you won't take part in the study. And if they say yes, then there's a 50-50 chance of them getting ECT treatment or ketamine treatment. And we are looking at whether there will be any difference uh, in the response after three weeks of treatment with either ECT or ketamine. This is a real-life, real-world study in which there's no uh, placebo or the you know, we, we take it, anybody for, for whom ECT is clinically indicated, we are taking them in. And uh, there's a lot of clinician discretion in, in choosing the treatment and how to give it. So it'll be just like real life. The question we are trying to answer is, if somebody's coming for, or people who come for ECT, instead of ECT, they, if they got ketamine, will they get equally better? Even if, even they get a little bit less equally better, whether it is worthwhile, because ketamine, does not cause memory problems, uh, does not require anesthesia, and actually, uh, most of the time, it is a pleasant experience, you know, getting the ketamine uh, intravenously. And uh, there are side effects of ketamine, like hypertension, and, you know, uh, it has it is a drug of abuse, uh, though there's not been much evidence that use of it uh, for depression has caused abuse, but uh, there are issues like that. We have to keep that in mind but it will be a dramatically different experience to getting ECT, getting ketamine treatment. So we are doing that study. It's probably the largest study ever done for ECT and certainly for ketamine. We, are, we have to do 400 subjects in the next, uh, and we have already done about three years of this, and we have completed about uh, 270 subjects have gone through the study. Uh, besides Cleveland Clinic, there are sites at Yale, Hopkins, Baylor, and uh, uh, Mount Sinai. In terms of additional studies, um, you know, one other major part of uh, depression, uh, consequence of depression is uh, people sometimes, you know, harm themselves or commit suicide. And uh, the great thing about ketamine is that it is also shown to have anti-suicidal effects. So again, the only treatment available for quick treatment for somebody who has depression and maybe has some suicidal thoughts was ECT before, but now ketamine has also been added and Spirado or esketamine, intranasal esketamine has got approval from the FDA for that use. Um, they didn't actually show a difference in uh, a change in suicidal ideas uh, with esketamine compared to placebo, but they did see that that depression uh, decreased uh, uh, much more with esketamine than placebo. It could also be used for that purpose. And we will also be doing research in that respect uh, later on. Well, Dr. Nod would like to uh, thank you for uh, joining us today. 
We're interested to see how your work continues to change the way we manage depression and looking forward to better treatments for this refractory patient population. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for having me. This concludes this episode of Neuropathways. You can find additional podcast episodes on our website, clevelandclinic.org slash neuropodcast, or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget, you can access real-time updates from experts in Cleveland Clinic's Neurological Institute on our ConsultQD website. That's consultqd.com clevelandclinic.org slash Nero or follow us on Twitter at CLE Clinic MD, all one word. And thank you for listening.